listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development. Covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. Our senior editor is back with us today. Always good to have James with us as he does excellent work for Future Sox as well as Sox Machine, which we are now partners with. Been that way all year. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network for supporting our podcast. Every Tuesday, you can find it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google. Look for it. Subscribe to it. Give us a review Go to SoxMachine.com for everything that we have to offer for you because we did the top 30 list a couple of weeks ago. Good feedback on that. Now, as September is here, we're monitoring not only the big league club, but of course, what to anticipate regarding the minors and who's going to participate in the Arizona Fall League. We also have some information on instructs that are upcoming, and we'll detail what exactly that means here shortly. But James, welcome back. Good to talk to you. A couple of things went down during your absence. Now, two weeks ago, we recorded with Josh as well as Sleepy to do our Top 30 show, and it was announced that Project Birmingham was becoming a thing. And James, you missed last week. We talked to James Fegan, we as in me, and James provided a ton of insight on what Project Birmingham is as well. We're looking forward to Jim Margulis traveling out to Birmingham when he has a chance to watch that team work in person. Good return so far, James. I'm curious what your opinion is since we haven't heard from you on the subject. The White Sox AA affiliate showcasing a ton of the top talent that the White Sox have to offer in the minor leagues. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think like others, like I think it's cool. Like my, I think my favorite part about it was just that it was like something that's never been done before and it's the White Sox that are doing it. That that was the part that was that was kind of the funniest, right? Cause like, we're not used to the white Sox being at the forefront of stuff. So like whether it works or not, or like whether other teams start doing similar, you know, it was cool that like Chris Getz or whoever in the organization is the one that came up with it. You know, some of them are pretty aggressive promotions, right? So, I mean, you have some guys from like, we talked a lot about West calf, like struggling in a ball and he's in double a, and, you know, they don't really, I, I feel like the organization doesn't really care as much about the stats in these games, right? They want these guys all in one place to get similar instruction from like all of their best coaches, all of their rovers, those type guys. Like we talked to an Andy Barquette, you know, Everett Tiford's on the pitching side. There's base running guys. Like, so like all of those people are in Birmingham together with this team and they're using the inactive list you know, to kind of just like decide who plays when. So, you know, I think while nobody wants to go back to, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, like the one thing, you know, the White Sox actually liked, you know, having that group of players in Schaumburg. And this is kind of similar to that, except for they're playing real games against real teams, like on the Birmingham Barons schedule. So I'm curious to see like after it's all over, like honest assessments of, like what the White Sox think 
like it's going to do and maybe like what other organizations do and if they follow suit and then even, you know, like the Jim Callis's of the world and those guys like commenting on, you know, this like after it's been done to see if maybe it was a way to, you know, like further develop a prospect or just get everybody in one place, see how it worked or didn't work. So I just, yeah, it was, it's, it's definitely different. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty cool. Using this as an instructional league while at the same time, monitoring these players who haven't seen this high level of competition before a number of them at that point. And you talked about the White Sox being the first to do it. I think about the way that Rick Hahn, the general manager of the White Sox going after cost controlled young stars who they projected to be top talents at the big league level, such as Tim Anderson early signing that seven year deal and Yohan Moncada, Luis Robert, getting those guys under contract, buying out arbitration years it's one of those things where I thought the league would take account into the success that kind of translated from that process. The success being, well, you're owning who you believe as your core players at pretty team-friendly deals, although it is a risk considering you don't know how those players are going to translate. The league didn't necessarily follow suit with the way the White Sox did business in that regard, but this is something that I think the league may take after because like you said, James, monitoring your core players, like the top 30 players, those who you believe are going to build your farm system to the next level in this environment. Could you just elaborate on why you think having players and instructors there together under a high level of competition is beneficial for an organization like the White Sox looking ahead to next year? Well, I mean, just going back, like like they obviously don't have anybody in the system right now that's like as highly regarded as like what Andrew Vaughn was, right? But I think one of the reasons why Andrew Vaughn didn't play above high A was because he was at the alternate site and he got all this like immediate instruction from like the guys who the White Sox feel are their best coaches, right? So these these guys thought like, oh yeah, he could he could hold his own there. So I just think it was a matter of like, you know, you could like fix stuff immediately with all these players, like with all their instructors in tow. And I, I think that's what, they kind of feel like this is more beneficial to players than playing out the string of minor league games for teams that, you know, record-wise weren't really that good anyway. But it's, I think it's kind of twofold. Like, there were a lot of draft picks um, and some guys from Arizona that kind of needed to go to Kannapolis anyway. So then in doing that, some players get promotions from Kannapolis to Winston-Salem. Then you take the prospects that are deemed, I guess, like your your most important or whatever, send them all to double A, um, and nothing really changed at Charlotte. Like the way the White Sox have always operated, like, you know, there's a lot of veterans at Charlotte because Charlotte is where immediate help comes from, right? Like we just saw Mark Payton get promoted, and while Mark Payton's not a prospect, that's the type of guy who you know, is in triple a to cover injuries, like when they occur. So yeah, I just, I just think the White Sox feel like development is more important than, than winning minor league games. But like, I don't necessarily know that Canapolis is worse by adding a bunch of college players to that team, like Jordan Sprinkle and Jacob Burke, who we'll talk about later and guys like that anyway. So that's why I think they, they, they kind of think it's the best of both worlds. And they can also with using the, the inactive list, 
you know, you can play guys sparingly. Obviously, Jose Rodriguez got hurt. I think one of the initial questions was like, okay, who plays shortstop, right? Jose Jose uh, Rodriguez or Colson Montgomery. And I think they were just going to kind of mix and match. Well, Jose's hurt and it doesn't matter. But, you know, scenarios like that, like you could sit a guy for a few days if they're at their limit. Like a lot of these guys have not played this much baseball before. So I think I think that went into the thinking. The minor league season is concluding in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about the Arizona Fall League as well as Instructs here shortly. But James, I want to take you to the big league club because, I mean, this is a serious situation going on with Tony La Russa, but I'd love to get your opinion on the way this process has unfolded because first and foremost, everybody should be concerned about Tony La Russa's well-being. That is the priority is making sure that he's okay. The next step is to figure out whether or not he's healthy enough to still be a part of this organization or if the job is too much for him in the dugout and what are the what are some of the things the White Sox are going to do moving forward with or without him? I think that's a huge topic of discussion because we know the influence Tony LaRusse has had on this organization since he was brought in prior to the start of 2021. Now without him in the dugout, Miguel Cairo has taken over. Ethan Katz still the pitching coach. Frank Menachino the hitting coach. Kurt Hassler out there in the pen. Here we are with the White Sox playing their best brand of baseball all season long. Now. Maybe the two are connected, maybe they're not, but the White Sox have to make a decision as to what they want to do with Tony La Russa. Now, we we talk about this, and it's speculation, and it's all conjecture because we don't know the details of the severity of Tony La Russa's condition. However, if it's enough for the organization to say that he is leaving due to medical circumstances, and if the job is creating so much stress to the guy that, yeah, maybe he could finish out the rest of the year, but it's a risk, then that risk is too high. What, what kind of position are the White Sox in at this moment, James? How do you th- foresee this situation playing out? Well, so, I mean, at this point, I just, I don't know how you bring him back at this point. I mean, you're look, like, we're recording Sunday. Like, we don't have the outcome of the three-game series with the Twins yet, and then, the, you know, the White Sox go to Seattle. But, I mean, you know, Miguel Cairo is 4-1 and one to start, and, like, you know, we talked about managers and where they fall and whether they're overrated, underrated, stuff like that. The team's like finally decided to play. Okay. So I just like, I don't know how you would interrupt that and just be like, Oh yeah, Tony's fine. Like he's back in the dugout. Like clearly something is not fine. And it's a, it's a very stressful job. And Tony's what 77 or something. So, you know, I mean, the whole thing was weird. And I think like the conspiracy theorists are out there and like, while I think that's, you know, generally nonsense, like, you know, I understand like why people were like, okay, the White Sox finally had enough because we like we talked about this all year. Like it was right there for you. You cannot change out the players, right? So like let's try it with a different manager and see what it looks like. And they just whoever it was, like I think we all assumed ownership, right? But the organization as a whole refused to do that. And even if it was like a little bit of a dead cat bounce, like I, I think we all would have taken it, right? And then a week ago, I think we we the majority of the fan base had given up on this team. You're six back at Cleveland. Like it's, it's looking very dour, like, and then all this happens and they're like, kind of seem completely different and re-energized and right back in it. And whether that's because Tony's gone or not, like, I, like, I don't think we can really prove, but the fact is that they're like, this is more like the team that we were expecting to see. So yeah, I mean, if it's bad enough for him to go to Arizona, like, I, I don't necessarily know that that means it's super serious, I just think it's tough for someone of that age to 
do this job as many have speculated it's very stressful the way he does the job is very stressful like every, like even the the media in this town has said that he's you know as committed as he's ever been so like while we disagree with his decisions you know the guy is at the ballpark at noon he's doing everything that other managers do and maybe even more i think we just disagree with his thought processes so i don't know what's going to happen here but i will say i don't know how you could maybe get closer to first base here or first place here. And then all of a sudden like announced that Tony La Russa's back. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know how they can do that, but you know, I, I guess that's one of the options theoretically on the table. I would, I would guess. The White Sox would not send out a press release about Tony La Russa's health. If it was considered a conspiracy theory, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't see any conspiracy here. This is not the White Sox excuse to say, okay, Here's our ticket out. This is the White Sox saying, hey, Tony La Russa is getting older and he wears his emotions on the sleeve. And when we got word from the doctors that it's important that he takes a step back, then that's the decision that they had to make. And that's that. So I'm left wondering whether or not he will return or if it's smart. To me, it doesn't sound smart considering all that we know. And if it is indeed heart related, according to Bob Nightingale, that is something that you'd like to avoid is the potential risk involved in managing a team like this and the stresses of the job, like you said, for a guy who's turning 78 years old in October. That being said, the White Sox are trying to win this central division. And suddenly we're seeing them play good baseball because they're hitting home runs. But last night, as we record this podcast, this is over the weekend, Dylan Cease put together one of the most impressive starts that we've seen him make ever in his career. And I'd like to give credit to the organization because we saw Dylan Cease in 2020 and 2019 as a pitcher that we were unsure about considering all the inefficiencies. Couldn't throw strikes, throws way too many pitches. Stuff was unbelievable. Couldn't stop talking about his stuff. Fast forward two to three years. A.L. Cy Young candidate. James, what has been the difference between Dylan Cease in 2020 to Dylan Cease in 2021 and now Dylan Cease this season. Well, so I mean, like while he, you know, it's, it's a lot of walks still, right? Like I think his command is better than ever. I think we always talk about fast. It's all based on fastball command. So like, you know, while he walks a lot of hitters, I mean, the strikeout rate's absurd too. And and I do think like, while he's always had premium stuff, I don't think the slider was necessarily like the, you know, like the best slider in baseball, like until this year, essentially. Right. So you know, I think like Ethan Katz gets a gets a lot of credit and should like he clearly has a method here, like the the core velocity stuff that's, you know, well, well above my pay grade. But I mean, Carlos Rodon last year, we all know Lucas Giolito and look, Lucas has taken a, a bit of a step back this year. But, you know, just some of the, you know, making the release point shorter and some of that stuff like Cease bought into that. And this year. He's a completely different pitcher. I mean, Cease is an ace. And last year he had starts similar to this, right? But I feel like you still didn't feel super confident throwing Dylan Cease like in a playoff series against somebody that might be better than you on the whole. Whereas this year, like I'd be fully confident in the White Sox winning game one in a playoff series if Dylan Cease was on the mound, like not even, not even a question. So he, you know, he's in the, I don't think he's going to win the Cy Young, but he's in, he's definitely one of the guys like in the race that needs to be taken seriously. And he just, uh, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a huge 
step forward for him. And then even, you know, for the White Sox too, because they, they needed one of these guys to be an actual ace. And it seems like Dylan Cease is that. His season has been outstanding. And you're right. Walks are still an issue, but he's cleaning things up comparatively. If we're just looking at his career, Dylan Cease has made so many strides and there's a number of things I'd like to bring up. You mentioned the core mechanical belt. That's an important thing to bring up because Dylan Cease himself has mentioned it. He said Ethan Katz worked with him on the core mechanical belt. And what that does is it allows Dylan Cease to just throw without thinking about completing his mechanics correctly every time. And the mechanical belt gives feedback to Katz and Cease to, and, and they adjust through that. And with that being involved, it has impacted Dylan Cease's mental ability to throw and not think about his mechanics every time, because I think that was part of it. Another thing is something that we've monitored over his career as we've been working at Future Sox is his ability to fix his fastball that used to cut. James Feagan was on this multiple years ago, but as a fastball setting up everything else in his repertoire, if it's cutting, you're not really sure where it's going to go. So his location has improved thanks to him straightening out his fastball. He overcame Tommy John surgery early in his early, early, early in his career with the Cubs. Following his time in Tommy John surgery with the Cubs, he spent a lot of time in single A because it took him a ton of time to get hitters out. The location, the command was all over the place. You fast forward multiple seasons. Let's see in 2021, the way that his mechanics have improved. And I think, James, this is a result of what Ethan Katz had seen in Lucas Giolito's transformation, shorter arm action. Really, it's all about the arm action uh, outside of balance. We see Dylan Cease. If you look at a side-by-side comparison of the way he threw in 2021 compared to 2020, it's a stark difference. You see Cease's shorter arm action, quicker to home plate versus a longer stride separate in 2020. He perfected it in 2022, the shorter arm action, and he's throwing pitches in the zone frequently. So the transition from Dylan Cease as this unbelievable stuff guy to AL Cy Young candidate, definitely worth mentioning. Credit the White Sox, credit Ethan Katz. And I brought up Lucas Giolito for a a reason, James, because we saw Giolito become one of the best pitchers in the American League, but now we're seeing a significant drop off in production and a lot of inconsistencies going on in his season. And I know we're talking a lot of big league club here, but this is organizational stuff that I'd like to focus on because we're watching pitchers develop at the big league level. And we're also monitoring a lot of the young pitchers that they have put a lot of stock in develop at the minor league level. When it comes to Giolito at this point, we know the fastball spin rate is down. We know he's throwing more sliders But his 2022 season overall has been sort of inconsistent just in terms of throwing and being on the the bump and dealing with a multitude of different concerns. What do you think is going on with Lucas Giolito in 2022 here, James? Well, so, I mean, it seems like being a two-pitch pitcher is really hard, especially when your fastball isn't as good as it used to be. I mean, I think it boils down to, like, for Lucas Giolito, I don't know what the reasons are. I don't know if it's because he put on weight or all of the issues that he's had this year. But to me, like as somebody that doesn't understand necessarily like all the complexities of pitching mechanics, like his fastball's not good enough. Like it's just not. And like he doesn't want to throw it. So 
you know, I feel like other teams like sit on like some of his other pitches. I think you, you know, you've talked about the slider usage. The slider usage is up this year, I believe, um, where he was like heavy fastball changeup previously, like in previous seasons. And for this year, for whatever it's worth, like he hasn't been. So, like, I would imagine he will tweak again. That's the one thing about Lucas Giolito. Like, I would feel comfortable. You know, if the White Sox all of a sudden like announced a contract extension with Lucas Giolito, like I, I, I wouldn't really fear that because I think he's always going to be trying to get better and looking to improve, and he's done it before, right? Like everybody knows that commercial, that worst pitcher in baseball commercial, and then he came back and and was better. And yeah, I just, I just think it's been like a super uneven season, and I think there's been a lot of reasons for that. But I just, I don't think he can live 91 to 93 with the fastball consistently. It has been an uneven season. I think that's a great way to put it because he comes into the year overweight. You know, the lockout I think has a lot to do with it, right, James? I mean, let's let's talk about that specifically. The significance of players unable to communicate with the organization. Now, players work out on their own a lot of the time with their own personal trainers, and that's totally normal. However, they're often in touch with the organization considering there's a plan that they'd prefer them to follow and monitor. But without that, Giolito was on his own, and he talked about how he thought adding weight or muscle will help him get through the entire 162-game season. Yeah. And look, when I saw him like after spring training reconvened or whatever, like I thought it was a good idea. I think everybody did. I think there's, there's memes and you know, everything online about people like being like, Oh my God, like Giolito's huge. Like it's going to be like a monster year. And then, you know, obviously it has not been, but the spring spring training being delayed due to the lockout has been a big thing for lots of guys. I mean, we could go to the positional side, like Yasmani Grandal, I feel like needed a full spring training to rehab from his myriad injuries too. And like never really did. Right. He hasn't had his legs all season and yeah, like he's 34 or 35 or whatever, but I don't think like he was just destined to be done as a baseball player. I just think it was interrupted. Lance Lynn got hurt in spring training in this, in the abbreviated spring training. I mean, and, and those are just white Sox examples. It happened all over baseball. It's like one of the things that's been awful about, the lockout. I mean, they, they haven't had a real spring training since what? Since 2019. I mean, that's that's crazy. So, yeah, I, I just think it's something you know going forward that that we'll see, especially with the pitchers, like with a full spring training, like how how different it is, right? But then, I mean, Dylan Cease is fine. So, you know, I guess you, you could you could argue it both ways. I'd guess it was interesting coming into the season. All of the different challenges, like we weren't expecting Giolito to take on. He had, I think to me, with the way he built his body was inconsistent with what he was doing previously in his career. The spin rate in his fastball was already down. You know, the velocity of his fastball, we're seeing that result to impact the rest of his repertoire because he can't rely on straight change anymore. Opposing hitters can catch up to the fastball, so they're not afraid of it. That means he's got to throw more sliders. So he's throwing more sliders. Now he's missing location, another part of like the way he's struggling this year is he's all over the place in the zone. He's getting hit hard. So with, with the combination of things and James here, let me take it to this because we have to figure this out quickly. Like you're talking about a contract extension for Lucas Giolito. He's got one year of arbitration remaining and you know how he fights for his arb dollars uh, with the white Sox. Given what we know now, a guy who has been all over the place an inconsistent season, we have to take all of this into account. 
What are the White Sox plans now looking down the road with Lucas Giolito? I know we have another year to evaluate, but given where the farm stands in their pitching depth, is it smart for the White Sox to think about extending Lucas Giolito right now? Yeah, I mean, I think they try to sign him. I think they've tried to, though. And obviously, like, everybody comes back to, like, last offseason with the arbitration hearing, right, where they were, like, $50,000 short or whatever, which is ridiculous. And then, you know, the White Sox figured it out. But, I mean, Lucas was obviously not happy about it because he mentioned it publicly. I just, like, I don't know what kind of deal you sign him to, though, right? Because it's, like, like I thought, like, Jose Barrios money, right, was, like, seven years at, like, 155 something like that was fair before but I just like don't know if anybody's giving him that now that's why I think it's just like kind of tough I think if if they come to some sort of I I think the White Sox will try because they don't like going into final years of deals with guys right so like I think 2023 is a year where the White Sox look to compete regardless so you don't want to trade one of your one of your top pitchers but you also don't want to just have a guy for one more year of control and then let him walk at the end of the year either. So yeah, it'll be one of the the more interesting offseason storylines for the White Sox is if they can lock up Lucas Giolito, how much it costs. And if they don't, like what they get for him and what the plan is to replace him in a season where they're going to be trying to win the American League Central. And we talked a lot of big league club there, James. Thanks for entertaining me there. You want to jump into Canapolis talk? You want to talk some high-end players out in Kannapolis because we have plenty more to get to here on the Future Sox podcast. We're going to take a quick break. If you subscribe to us on Patreon, you can listen to this ad-free. So think about it. Go to SoxMachine.com and become part of our community. It really helps us out and you'll be able to skip these ads. But if you're not, stick around because we have more White Sox talk coming your way here on the Future Sox podcast. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for sticking around to the Future Sox podcast. We brought up Canapolis Cannonballers, and we did that because a lot of the players on that team were promoted to Winston, and then those at Winston were promoted to Birmingham. So that means single A is kind of barren. I I don't want to disrespect those who are there, but barren in the fact that we're unfamiliar with a lot of the names, whether they're first-year draft players or those breaking into the professional scene for the first time. So James, who are some of the guys in Kannapolis now, the low-A affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, who's standing out to you so far? So it's one of the things that we touched on is just that with – with Project Birmingham, right? Somebody has to play at the other affiliates. Um, the White Sox were pretty college heavy in this draft outside of Noah Schultz. So, you know, some of those guys are now in, in single A Canapolis because, the you know, Arizona League is over currently. 
right? So, you know, like we, Jonathan Cannon was their third rounder. He's, he's pitching occasionally in low A right now. And, you know, just some, some other guys um, from, from the past that they have there just because they have to fill these teams. But the two, and, you know, maybe it's more than two, right? But I feel like the most interesting position players there, Jordan Sprinkle, who's immediately a top 30 prospect for us, is the shortstop pretty much every night for the Cannonballers. And then a guy that I've said to keep an eye on, Jacob Burke, was their 11th rounder out of Miami. He was an overslot signing. He's played, you know, so far in 16 games with the Cannonballers. It's only... 66 plate appearances, but he's hit 278, 409, 426. It's a 140 WRC plus in low A. I mean, he was a two to one strikeout to walk guy in college, which they usually try to avoid. Um, it's a 21% K rate in Canapolis, which isn't, you know, it isn't terrible. He'll have to raise the walk rate, but I mean, he's, he's just like a tooled up big center fielder with power. He actually kind of reminds me some of Romy Gonzalez and they, you know, they went to the same school, which I guess kind of makes that more interesting too. But, you know, so, I mean, in addition to those guys, Brooks Baldwin's another draft pick. Tim Elko is a guy that you've mentioned on the podcast. He's there as well. So this is just, I guess, like what the White Sox were able to do. Those guys joining, you know, guys, the people who listen to this pros- this podcast have heard of like Benjamin Bailey and Misael Gonzalez and, you know, Logan Glass and guys like that that are still, down there at Canapolis. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's how Canapolis will end their season with a lot of recent 2022 draft picks. It's good to hear Benjamin Bailey's name, somebody who we haven't talked about lately on the podcast, Panamanian outfielder who's just massive. So hopefully the potential is reached there. James, I'm thinking about the catching situation, and I don't mean to just drop this bomb on you, but you're thinking forward for the White Sox. Next year... Yasmani Grandal has the final year of his contract that needs to be played out. Carlos Perez is already at the big league level. Sebi Zavala is at the big league level. Evan Skaug, that uh, is somebody that has been promoted as a result of a lot of these catchers being moved up in, in the ranks. Adam Hackenberg is somebody that we think highly of as well as the White Sox. I, I'm just thinking, what is the catching situation looking like in the White Sox system right now, and how does that impact the big league level next year. Yeah, I mean, so like immediate help is probably Carlos Perez, you would think. I mean, Sebi Zavala is on the 40-man, so he'll be around. Hackenberg was at high A Winston-Salem this year. He's with the group in Birmingham. But another guy, Tyler Osick, who you know I interviewed in the past, he's had some struggles, but he's been he's been really good with the bat this year. And he was like a converted catcher. He played first base. Um for a while. And he was, I know he played uh, at central Florida, I believe, but he, he really has raked this year and he's at double a. So, I mean, look, if he's at double a, like he could end up at triple a. And if you hit like you're close to the big league. So, you know, they don't have any super immediate catching depth of a guy. That's like, man, that's like the next starter for the white Sox. Right. So like, look next year in the first round, if the white Sox took their next household name catcher, like nobody should be surprised by that. But you know, they, they have some depth. I think Carlos Perez, you know, has had a solid year and I think he profiles as a backup. So like a lot of it depends on Yasmani Grandal and how he comes back. And he's made some comments lately about, you know, how he just, he wants to catch more and he doesn't like DHing as much as he's DH, but he's also been hurt. So, you know, I don't, I don't think we really know the whole story there. So, but he is, he is in the final year of his contract. 
And then the White Sox will have to kind of figure out what their next step is. And, you know, if I had to guess, like their starter in 2024 at catcher probably isn't in the organization right now, if I had to guess. So there it is. Yeah, I was just thinking out loud because you're not going to sign a big league backup to Grandal with Sebi Zavala there. And you already called up Carlos Perez, one of his options. So there's your third catcher. As long as Grandal is healthy enough, he will be obviously the primary catcher with Zavala there as the backup and most likely catching more than you expect, given where Grandal has been over his last year plus uh, health-wise. So that's just something that I was thinking about and glad you could answer that question for us. So James, now let's move forward a little bit. We talked about the big league club a lot. We mentioned Canapolis and all those who are involved there at the big league level right now is Romy Gonzalez, a top 30 prospect, top 15 prospect on our list at socksmachine.com and futuresocks.com. Romy is showing that he can handle the big league club. Now the thing about his season this year has been inconsistent because there hasn't been any opportunity to develop any consistency. Um, Gromy is finally getting regular at bats, and it's coming at the big league level. We saw him burst on the scene last year, missed so much time this season. Now he is filling a role that the White Sox need. Romy is holding his own. How can you evaluate the future for Romy Gonzalez at the big league level and within the White Sox organization at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm on record like thinking like he can I think Romy can play in the big leagues and he can play multiple spots. I mean, they've been playing they've played him quite a bit since he's been up. He's played a lot of second base. Um, he didn't play much second base in the minors, but he did play shortstop and center. I kind of thought like he was gonna be on the big league team this year, but then you know, like Larry Garcia's brought back on his three year deal that, you know, we keep being forced into talking about, and Josh Harrison was added to the fold, and then Romy was hurt basically the entire season. He's had, you know, a bunch of different stuff wrong with him. Now he's been up like I think it's like 11 or 12 games in the big league so far. He hit his first home run on Saturday night. Um, His numbers have been pretty good since returning to the big league. So, you know, that's a guy who should be at minimum like a big league utility type option for you for for next season and going forward. And with the outside shot of like maybe Romy Gonzalez hits enough to become your second baseman. And, you know, I, I just think they have a collection of these type of guys where, you know, the future in the middle infield, I think is interesting. It's something we've touched on um, in the podcast quite a bit. I mean, cause you have Romy Gonzalez and then you have guys like Lenin Sosa, who's hitting now at Charlotte after his monster season at Birmingham, he got a cup of coffee in the big leagues. He'll be an option. You know, Danny Mendick is injured, but he's, he's an option as well. And then you got, you know, guys like Jose Rodriguez and Colson Montgomery is not far behind, but, you know, probably not for next year. So like middle infield depth is is pretty good in the system right now. So it's just going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out because, look, they're not going to be able to keep everybody. So they're going to have like some tough decisions to make in the near future to see who they're going to keep and, you know, who you're going to use to go get something else potentially. Yeah, I think one more season. We're talking about 2023, and you'll see leaps from those who you mentioned, especially Colson Montgomery. As long as he stays on the field, that kid is going to be a quick riser, and we'll see him at the big league level, even with Tim Anderson on the roster. I can guarantee that because the skill set, the talent, he profiles as a big league regular, and that's really exciting to hear. James, as we 
come to a close on this episode of the podcast, there's something unique that I think we need to pay a lot of attention to, and that's Instructs. The Instructional League going on in Arizona as the White Sox are preparing to continue to develop some of these guys who did not see a lot or any professional experience this year. And some notable names. One that popped out to me was Tanner McDougal. Great to see him throwing. He is ramping up his bullpen sessions, his flat ground sessions, as well as, I don't know if he's thrown live yet, but I know he's thrown a number of pitches uh, in sessions, so 20 to 30 pitches in bullpen sessions, which is awesome. Outside of Tanner McDougal, who are some of the names that jumped out to you? And of course, you can comment on where McDougal is in his development. That's just a right-handed prep pitcher that the White Sox took who had Tommy John surgery and is now working his way back. He is going to get a chance to compete, but others on the list that jump out to you as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the biggest name is obviously Noah Schultz. Like he's the first rounder out of us. We go East. We, he did not pitch this season in Arizona. He went straight to instructs. The White Sox are calling it the like bridge league. So he's, they're like pitching in this now, I guess, um, like prior to games, I guess starting like officially, but Noah Schultz pitched this week. Um, Bill Mitchell saw him out in Arizona. You know, there were some other, I, we, I retweeted from the, the Future Sox Twitter account, like some highlights of Noah Schultz. I mean, he pitched one inning, three punch outs, and he, he hit a batter. Um, they said he was 93 to 96 with the fastball. But, you know, again, he has he hadn't pitched in a while. So, you know, th- he's like one of the highlights on the pitching side. You mentioned McDougal. McDougal's, you know, there and of interest. Like he should be in low A next year. Their fifth rounder this year out of Ball State, Tyler Schweitzer. He didn't go out to an affiliate and pitch, whereas some of his counterparts, like some of the other college pitchers, did. My guess is it's just some sort of innings thing, and you know they want to see him out there type thing. But I mean, a guy we've talked about Yohami Nolasco and. You know, there's some other draft picks that are out there on the pitching side. It's a lot of, you know, this will be the first stateside action um, for lots of the players that were playing in the Dominican Summer League, too. So, I mean, like shifting over, like on the positional side, there's a ton of Venezuelan catchers. There's Loydel Chapei, who we've talked about quite a bit. Eric Hernandez was a million dollar bonus guy out of Dominican Republic last year. He's there in fall instructs. Dario Barrero was in Arizona. So he, he just kind of stays in Arizona. And then like one of the guys we've talked about Victor Cazada in the past and Godwin Bennett and some of these other guys, like all of these players that were in the Dominican summer league that were fairly highly regarded will now be in Arizona. And usually that means that next year they'll They'll either stay in, you know, out in Glendale and pitch in and play in Arizona, or they'll get their first taste at uh, at Canapolis. But this is basically the first step to that. It's like all the the youngest guys in the organization playing in Instructs uh, this month, and I think October as well for part of it. It's great to see Victor Quezada, 6'1", 185 listed. He's eighteen years old. James Tanner McDougal is six five two thirty five. Yeah, apparently. I mean, he was tall. I didn't know he weighed that much before, but I don't know. Maybe he went on the Lucas Giolito plan. 6'5", 235 at 19 years old. He'll turn 20, obviously, next season. And man, with the RPMs that we saw him produce coming into the draft class two years ago, this is something to be excited about. 
You know, it's great to have McDougal healthy and throwing and being a part of this thing. Noah Schultz saw pictures and uh, a couple of videos of him throwing. It looks like there are some mechanical tweaks that need to be made there, but the length jumps out at you. The guy, when he strides, looks like he's going to step on home plate as he's delivering the pitch. I mean, he gets so much in his stride. I love to see how that will continue to develop. Obviously, the stuff is incredible, but the White Sox are doing things right, in my opinion, James, in terms of just organizational congruity. I think everybody's on the same page in terms of how to develop these minor league players. And then it's the big league club. It's like Major League Baseball, White Sox, everything else. You know, It's like they're two different things. How can the White Sox be as dysfunctional as they've been at the big league level versus how great, in my opinion, the structure has been set in place for the organization to grow from top down? And we talked to Andy Barquette, of course, but Chris Getz, the way he's doing things as the assistant general manager, to me, and I said this on last week's podcast, over the last decade, the White Sox have made tremendous strides in not only getting into the 21st century of being a major league organization, but doing things the right way and developing a franchise that relies on their minor league talent to help them at the big league level and also allows them to acquire big league talent. Am I wrong? No, I don't think so. And I think like, look, we've we've seen them jump a little bit, you know, in the rankings and the rankings aren't all that matters. It's just, you know, we, we kind of talked about it. Like even for the 30th ranked farm system, like there were players that we felt the need to talk about every week. Right. So you know, they can climb even further here. And I think Fall Instructs is one of the places where you kind of see that. Also, the Arizona Fall League, we didn't really talk about, but we don't we don't really know who's going to the Arizona Fall League other than what we saw. One pitcher, Declan Cronin. I, I would imagine some of the White Sox higher end talent will be there too. We just don't have those names and I don't really feel like speculating. But I mean, there's that, which is the prospect circuit. And then you know, the instructional league. So guys like Noah Schultz, this is the first time scouts are going to see Noah Schultz like in White Sox colors pitching. And that's where, you know, you start to you're, to file your reports and the top 100 list come out in the spring. And maybe it's like, oh man, Noah Schultz like looked really good in instructs and it's just a data point. But that's where like a lot of that stuff, you know, starts, starts trickling out because it's just scouts are all over Arizona and Florida, you know, looking at these guys for what, it might be the first time for, for a lot of them. I really just appreciate the organization valuing talent in the farm system. It's not best player available. It's we're doing our homework. We have reasons why we like a player. We have a strategy into the draft. All of those things matter. They're also valuing their talent. They're not selling themselves short. They're not giving away talent to immediately help the big league club when maybe the return is substandard compared to you know the value of a prospect that maybe in the past they were just willing to give up. And I, I'm looking forward to the way that the White Sox are going to implement their young talent over the next couple of years because I think there's legit talent here that can help at the big league club when they're ready. Yeah, and it seems like guys like came up too, right? Like we saw Lenin Sosa, and yeah, it was a tiny sample and he didn't look great, but you know, that's a guy that should be able to help your big league team. And there's people that think Jose Rodriguez is better than he is. So like, we just haven't had this many guys to talk about consistently in a while. Right. And I will say like, you know, we covered all these guys on the big league team, but not all of these guys were homegrown White Sox. They traded for a lot of them. Your Eloy Jimenez's and Dylan Cease and, and those guys, they, they haven't had this much homegrown talent 
in a while, even though it's not as high end as some of those guys, right? I feel like they just have more. But, you know, before we wrap up, going back to Schultz quickly, you know, you had a great interview with with James Fegan last week. And I, I thought Fegan's article on Schultz was fascinating. Just like some of the stuff, like the process that the White Sox used to draft him and look like I had talked back in the day with Nick Hostetler just about how there's a lot of organizations where if their top guys can't get out to see a guy, they're not going to take them. And, you know, I think with boards being submitted, like Noah Schultz was still pitching. The White Sox got to see him more than other teams just because they're local. And, you know, I think they just kind of, it's kind of been reported that they decided that he had more upside than any of their college options and they went and did it. You know, I do like how involved Ethan Katz seems to be in that process. They're not taking some six foot nine, you know, southpaw that the big league pitching coach doesn't think can start, right? Like it's it's all harmonious, which is good. So I just, you know, stuff like that from James is always great. But, you know, there just there wasn't that much stuff out there on Schultz and the process and how it all like came together. So you know, it was it was great that we we got to have him on the podcast and he could elaborate a little bit further on kind of what they were thinking there. That's James Fox, the senior editor at Future Sox. You can follow him at James Fox nine one seven on Twitter. I'm at Rankin nine zero six. You can follow us on futuresox.com and you can also go to Twitter at Future Sox to follow us there. We're part of SoxMachine.com, and this is a product of the Blue Wire Network. The reason why you're able to listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting us all throughout the years. James, I was talking about it last week. You know, the, the the amount of podcasts that we've done over the last couple of seasons is kind of like piling up now. And I think back to our time in 2020 when we were trying to fill <laughs> the season worth of content without a minor league year. And uh, there's there's been a lot of strides on this podcast. So I just wanted to say thanks. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't do it. Like if, if nobody was listening, right? It would just be like us two talking to each other and nobody would care, but yeah, no, I mean, we, we appreciate the support. You know, I try to make it a point to thank people for reading and listening and try to respond to comments as much as I can when I can remember and stuff like that. So I don't know. I mean, that year was, that year was crazy, but I think it kind of, it kind of allowed us to have some guests that maybe we, we wouldn't normally have. Right. And we talked to a lot of people and made a lot of friends and acquaintances and yeah, I mean, so Look, it wasn't it wasn't all bad in 2020, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you're right. It allowed us to talk to people who had a lot of free time on their hands and they gave us that time and we learned a lot and here we are doing it every Tuesday for you here on the Future Sox podcast, part of SoxMachine.com. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox podcast. That was James Fox. My name is Mike Rankin. We're here for you every week. Stay tuned for next week. I told you Jim Margulis would recap Project Birmingham. We'll get an update from him as soon as he makes the trip. So once he does, he'll tell us, and you can learn about it as much as we do. So thanks so much, as always, for tuning in. This has been a presentation of the Blue Wire Network. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.